Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, we've got a fantastic guest this week. Professor Russell Napier is an author, consultant, investor, and the founder of the Library of Mistakes up in Edinburgh. You might be familiar with his most recent book, The Asian Financial Crisis, Birth of the Age of Debt, which came out in July. Vera German was joined by fellow Schroeder's co-worker Tom Dykes to chat with Russell about the use of journaling and diary keeping as part of a decision-making process, how people can respond to crises like the Asian financial crisis in the 90s, which Russell experienced firsthand while living in Hong Kong, and how people can get a little bit better at taking a step back and making better macro predictions. Enjoy. Hi, Russell. Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast. Um, We're so happy that you've joined us. Would you mind introducing yourself briefly? Yeah, sure. So I've been involved in financial markets since 1989 when I started as a fund manager, but really from mid Uh, 1990s, I've been writing about financial markets for institutional investors and talking to institutional investors since 1995 about where they should be investing all over the world. I I run a course in finance called The Practical History of Financial Markets, which has been running since 2004. I've written two books on financial history and financial markets, Anatomy of the Bear and uh, the Asian uh, Asian Financial Crisis. And I run a library. I'm also a librarian. I am the keeper of the Library of Mistakes in Edinburgh, which has branches in Pune in India, and as of last week, Lausanne near Geneva. And our motto is changing the world one mistake at a time. Uh, And let's hope we can do that over the next hour. Let's start with the first question. Uh, You are a strong advocate of keeping an investment diary. Why do you think this is a helpful instrument for improving one's decision making? Yeah, it's uh, to help us remember, because we are very good at forgetting. Uh, We're very good at forgetting, not just because we have a bad memory, but because we like to change the past to suit the future. Uh, And quite often you've made a decision to buy something and the facts start changing and then you start changing the reasons why you actually bought the stock in the first place. So if it's written down in a bit of paper, it's much easier obviously just to go back and say, well, here are the three reasons I bought it and those three reasons have evaporated. Now I've made up three new reasons as to why I own it. And now I question that. Why Why would I make up those uh, three new reasons? This is bad, this is dangerous. Uh, but unless I actually wrote them down, there is a tendency for the human brain to fool itself and think, this is the reason why I bought the stock. So you've, you've got to write it down. You've got to think about it. Also, it's your institutional memory. Uh, sometimes you make a mistake. It'd be nice to know why you made a mistake. Uh, sometimes you get it spectacularly right. Imagine a world where you kept getting things right but didn't know why you'd got things right. So that is the way you kind of begin to work out how good you are, how bad you are, and probably more importantly of all, how lucky you are. Uh, because sometimes this, you know you buy a stock for three reasons and three other things happen and it goes up. Uh, it is tempting for all of us as human beings to believe that we are now geniuses, but actually you got lucky. So if you're going to try as a human being making a decision about anything really uh, that involves the future, I think that's probably one of the, the most important first steps to do that. I am not a fund manager. I write for... Uh, institutional investors, so I have to do it, and it's in the public domain. Uh, I would say that that is not a good thing to do. Keep it private. Don't put it into the public domain. Uh, that's you know, keep this diary secret to yourself. It's to help you. Uh, and the problem of putting it in the public domain, as I know after 25 years of doing it, is you do find yourself maybe irrationally defending your opinions uh, to the public audience that you've made it. So don't don't put it out into the public because you find yourself. Uh, in a corner sometimes defending it when you know you really shouldn't be Uh, and I'm I'm guilty of that as everybody else is so a diary yes but a private diary and uh, you obviously have a lot of experience do you find yourself revisiting the same decisions you've made in the past in the diary more frequently than others or some particular decisions yeah so so I say I have a very public diary of of everything I've written Uh, I I would say that uh, 
when you see something happening in a market that looks like something you've seen before, you, you go back. And often, as I said, the brain fools you and it's not the same. But that's, what, that's why I'm lucky because I've written it up so I can then go back and look at it and, and, and see if it's the same or not. And the important thing about markets is they don't deal with the present and they don't deal with the past. They deal with the future. Uh, and one of the reasons that I've focused on, you know, the various projects that I've focused on is to try and get a snapshot of contemporaneous opinion. So if I go back three years or five years, if I go, if I go back to a period when inflation was rising, for instance, which is where we are today, what do people think about the future? Now, we all know what happened, but what do people think about the future and why were they wrong? Because that's what was reflected in markets. It wasn't the present, it was people's expectations about the future. So I go back and I look and say, well, last time this happened, what did people think and why were they wrong? And try to learn from their mistakes and my own mistakes as well. Uh, but you can really, that isn't very covered very well in financial history. It's not covered well in research because we go back and we report what happened. And we don't report what people thought would happen. And, you know, if you've been in the markets a long time, they're obviously radically different. So the argument in my first book, Anatomy of the Bear, is you can learn more from these mistakes than you can from successes. So that's a good thing about having this, this, this record. You, you revisit something that looks the same, and then you try to say, what did people think that meant, and why were they wrong? There are lots of, uh, lots of interesting things to, to pick up on here, but you've, um, you've mentioned that you think that people learn more from mistakes than from successes. Mm. And one of your projects is uh, the Library of Mistakes in Edinburgh. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that and how that idea came about and what do you, what do you hope you can achieve with it? Sure, I could probably fill that in. I could probably fill an entire library with books about Warren Buffett. <laughs> and, and yet there's only one Warren Buffett. The point is that, you know, he may be a brilliant investor. I may read all the books, but that doesn't make me Warren Buffett. So it, it must be quite difficult to learn from success. Otherwise, we'd just be doing what Warren Buffett did or other investors. So I think it's easier to learn from mistakes. I remember going to a presentation by a chap called Peter Burwash, who'd been a very famous tennis player. And he expended the secret of am amateur tennis, and I've never played tennis, is to get the ball over the net. <laughs> That's the secret. And then the other guy makes the mistake. So all you've got to do is not make the mistake, get the ball over the net. And I think that's true in investing. You will always make mistakes. But reducing your mistakes is much easier than becoming you know, an investment genius. So the, the library of mistakes is more than a library of mistakes. Actually, it's, it's a little bit of a marketing name for a business and financial history library. So it is also full of successes as well as mistakes, <laughs> ironically. But the reason for it, and it's uh, something I started back in 2004 with a, with a course I launched, is to try and get financial history onto the agenda for anybody who wants to do investment, whether they be professionals or amateurs or that you really do need to understand the past. Now, I think it's coming a little bit more into vogue. It's been completely out of vogue. As you know, there are people who think the equation can tell us the future to two decimal places. Uh, <laughs> I uh, sometimes envy these people for, their, uh, for, their, for the certainty they have about the future. It's not a certainty I share. Uh, the world has paid, in my opinion, a heavy price for being full of people who can forecast the future to two decimal places. Uh, the reason it's coming back into vogue a little bit is I think everybody who's listening to this realizes that if you're going to forecast the future today, you better be forecasting politics and you better be forecasting sociology. That's not what economists do. You know, they're, they're, those are not forces that they necessarily understand very well. Uh, it's not forces they want to understand very well. But if one looks back in financial history, one sees how politics played a role in financial markets. One sees how sociology plays a role, psychology. So the way I like to put it is that modern economics is, is a distillation. And, uh, you know, I live in Scotland. And when you distill, we all know what the end product of distillation is. But you throw away a lot of stuff as well. And modern economics has thrown away a lot of stuff that more every day we come to realize is really very important if you're going to forecast financial markets. Uh, how on earth do you forecast the financial future of China without understanding the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping? I have no idea how you would do that. Uh, but if you have the right equations, apparently you can. So the whole point of the Library of Mistakes is to get financial history back onto the agenda for anybody seeking to understand financial markets. In, your, um, in some of your books, you've written about the behavioral aspects of standing apart from the investment crowd. I was just wondering, you, you have very forthright views on some aspects of macroeconomy. As your career has gone on, have you found it easier to take positions which are different from consensus or widely held views? 
So the, the, the obvious answer would be yes, because because you can afford it as you <laughs> as you get older and you're not as frightened of losing your job. But to be fair, uh, I had very forthright views when I was 25 as well. <laughs> so uh, maybe it's just something in the air. The further north in Britain you go, that uh, uh, maybe Yorkshire would be an example. And a Yorkshire man says what he likes and likes what he says. And maybe that pervades a little bit more in the north of Britain. So uh, it's not a problem I ever had. But I think it is easier as you get older to have more forthright views. Uh, I, I, I always get this quote wrong. It was Sinclair Lewis, I think, who said that it's hard to persuade a man of the truth if he get paid for not believing the truth. And uh, sometimes that is a problem in, for all of us. But uh, it's something we all have to struggle to, to get past. The institutional herd, or the electronic herd, I think, as they call it these days, it's, uh, there's, you know, why do wildebeest run in a herd? We all know why they run in a herd, because if you're at the side, you can get killed. So uh, humans are in many ways, not different from wildebeest. And there is safety if you're running with the herd, and uh, it's also a bit boring. We have discussed the, the the habit of keeping an investment diary at the beginning, and one thing that it has allowed you to do is to write a book that you recently published uh, on the Asian financial crisis. And you've used your diaries um, as, as a foundation for the book and then reflected upon them and reflected upon on what you thought and the wider financial community thought about it. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the book and perhaps why did you decide to write it now? Yeah, so that will be a very long answer. So we'll try and split it into three pieces. So the advantage of the stuff I wrote at the time is it was trying to guess the future. So that's not history per se. It's the history of thought about the future. It's quite different. I think really fascinating and interesting and not enough of it has been done. And you don't need my diaries to do it because we've got the press. So anybody can do it. You can sit down and you say, what were people thinking in 1987? Pick up the front page of the Wall Street Journal and you'll get exactly the consensus opinion from 1987. And then, with the benefit of hindsight, we'll know why it's wrong. And that gap between uh, forecast and reality is was something we can all learn about, but it's not really being written about. So I just on this occasion, because I had written another book where I did go back and use the Wall Street Journal, I used my own diaries. Those diaries also reflected the consensus because I was walking into a room to see investment managers and saying, here's why the consensus is wrong. So I was able to have the consensus from that as well. So I thought it was good source material to look at that. Uh, the whole of, So the whole of war and the whole of life is knowing what's on the other side of the hill, said Wellington. You're full of good quotes today. <laughs> <laughs> well, Wellington was also full of good quotes. And, uh, you know, that game of guessing what's on the other side of the hill is not something that's really actually widely written about in terms of analyzing where it went right and wrong in the past. And yet it's what we do every day. So there's a good, there was good base material to do that. Secondly, uh, I th this, this was a huge culture clash. It's, you know, the people will see this as a book about the financial markets. Well, it was a manifestation in financial markets also of a massive clash of cultures between a form of capitalism, which was newly invigorated coming out of America primarily, but actually not the old laissez-faire capitalism that we, we all thought it was initially. It was that, but it was then armed with huge amounts of debt and leverage and financial engineering, which, you know, it's not wasn't exactly what... Uh, I don't think what Adam Smith had in mind when he <laughs> first defined uh, capitalism. So it was a new type, and it ran straight into North Asia. And for even before the Asian crisis, had been battling with Japan, which is a very different type of capitalism, uh, social capitalism. Uh, South Korea uh, believes in social capitalism. And then, of course, we had the rise of China. And China, uh, at least the bit run by the state, clearly believes in social capitalism. And the two came head-to-head -head in 97 and fought it out. And everybody at the time, and there was great triumphalism, thought that the, this laissez-faire, what I call financial capitalism, is a very bad phrase for it, actually, but you know, highly geared capitalism. Everybody thought it had won. Uh, and I wrote at the time that it hadn't won. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm, maybe we'll get on to this later. But actually, the way that the, the rest of the world is going on, the developed world, it's quite clear that North Asia has won. And we're becoming more like them. They're not going to become more like us. We're going to become... Uh, more like them. So I thought it was time to write this book to say <clears throat> this: the great background for everything we've seen in financial markets actually is a great battle between these two forms of, well, I call them capitalism, but it's really society, how you organize a society. And that rages on and will be incredibly important uh, for the next 20 or 30 years. And I did say it would be a long answer. So there's a third part to this. Uh, and I believe that what happened in that Asian crisis set the scene for the next 20 years in terms of the, the massive amounts of debt uh, that have accumulated. They, they devalued the currencies. They wouldn't let the currencies go back up again. They exported very cheaply. That kept interest rates down in the developed world, uh, allowed everybody to borrow very cheaply. Uh, it terrified the central bankers in the West of deflation. So anytime that 
inflation went lower, they would cut rates and print more money. And uh, it was the kind of, it was the uh, foundations for where we are today. And where we are today is the highest level of debt to GDP ever recorded in the history of the world. So something pretty spectacular happened about 30 years ago. Uh, maybe I'm wrong that this was it, but something happened to give us where we are today. And, and that level of debt to GDP will determine our entire future. So those are three reasons why I wrote a book uh, about the Asian financial crisis. I think uh, when reading the book, Russell, one of the things that interested me about it was whether, Ian, at the point of studying financial history is to take the lessons of the past and apply them to the future. And if you go back to COVID about a year and a half ago, there was a lot of concern about the economic position in places like Southeast Asia and East Asia. And they've come out of the crisis having really sort of supported their position in the global economy. Does that make you feel like the lessons of the financial crisis in the late 90s have been learnt in some way? I, I think it's, it's really fascinating to look at the history of debt crises because people who go through one tend to learn that lesson for quite a long period of time. And I think if you look at the balance sheets of Asia in particular, they're in much, much better condition than of the developed world. Uh, and it was a long time ago, but to some extent, the shadow of that crisis has pervaded and has capped debt levels, and particularly foreign currency debt levels, which are a more, which are a bigger problem when you have them. So I think they've they've run better balance sheets than then. And certainly, if we look at that number of debt to GDP, and I'm throwing this number with a record all time high. Well, we're not in Asia; uh, we are in. Uh, China, probably. We are in Japan. We are up in North Asia. But in the other bits of Asia, actually, these debt-to-GDP levels are quite low and limited. So it looks like they learned the lesson. In fact, it is interesting. If you look at the countries who've got the kind of the highest and most dangerous private sector debt service ratios, which what that means is where most the highest proportion of private sector income is servicing debt, it's China and France. <laughs> it's fascinating. You know, everybody just thinks it's going to be the emerging markets, but it's China and France, and these are countries that didn't really have huge crises before, and that seems to be the lesson. If you have a big crisis, you do learn a lesson, but if you don't, then you are setting yourself up for you know, more debt. So we've we've redistributed the debt problem, and it's not as bad in America as people think it is, uh, but it is bad in France and, and China. But you, as, as you so rightly say, there was flexibility in Asia because they didn't have very high debt levels, and they've used that flexibility and I think they will attract a lot of capital because of that. And I think people will see them as more attractive than the developed world now because they have much better balance sheets. And it's not going to force them into some of the extreme policies that we're going to witness and live through uh, in the developed world. I'm glad you've read the book and uh, you're still smiling. So a friend of mine who was with me in Asia at the time, who's a f well-known fund manager, he read it and he said to me, I said, well, what did you think of it? He said, it's, 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 like, it's like reliving a plane crash. <laughs> so, Tom, you were lucky not to be there the first time. It probably wasn't <laughs> quite as traumatic for you to read it as it is for, the, as, as for my friends who experienced it and are now reliving it in flashback. So it, it sounds from that that potentially China is the area we should be looking for as a subject for a future Russell Napier book. At the present time, do you have a view to how China might seek to resolve the growing debt crisis they have? Yeah, ab ab absolutely. So what is the lesson from, uh, from that period? Uh, you've read the book, so you know that it begins in Southeast Asia on the 2nd of July with a devaluation of the bat. Now, now as an analyst who had got some sort of recognition for getting that right. Let me tell you the bit it got wrong. We were looking at Taiwan and saying, we don't have to worry that this spreads to Taiwan. Taiwan has a current account surplus, which is, I think it was 2.5% of GDP, and it has some of the biggest foreign exchange reserves in the world. So you just think, well, there's a rock-solid balance sheet. There's nothing that country is going to be affected by. This is fine. And then we got, so that was true for July, and it was true for August, and it was true for September. Uh, and then the new Taiwanese dollar devalued by 14% in October. And there was just complete shock. What on earth is going on? Why did they do that? Uh, and this is germane for China because you, you can see the parallel. China has a current account surplus. China has the biggest foreign exchange reserves in the world. Most people just look at that and say, well, that's a currency that isn't going to move. So why did Taiwan do that? And the answer is that there was enough capital leaving Taiwan. In that case, it was the inability to roll over short-term dollar debt that, that, that was impacting that, that it sent interest rates higher. Bottom line, they were trying to defend the exchange rate uh, as capital was leaving, and that sends your interest rates higher. And people of a certain vintage will remember the United Kingdom being in that <laughs> position as well in 1992, uh, and that's the way it works. So going back to China now, 
in my opinion, and has been an opinion long before COVID, uh, China is running far too tight a monetary policy that is now manifesting itself in problems in its property market, which, let's face it, we've seen this story before. Uh, so, And also we've seen the answer before. How does China fix it? You slash interest rates and you print money. Now the question is, is that compatible with a stable exchange rate? Remember, China, like Asia, is, or like Asia back in the 90s, is managing its exchange rate. It's not a free float. So in my opinion, the answer is a flexible exchange rate. So what now is in the front, pa- front page of the newspapers is a property crisis. As it was in Thailand in 96, this is a property crisis. It's not a property crisis. It's an exchange rate. I don't want to use the word crisis because there's nothing wrong with letting your currency float. But the ultimate end goal here for Xi Jinping is lower interest rates, print money, and you need a flexible exchange rate to do it. And the conventional thought would be that would lead to deflationary hmm. uh, depreciation depreciation environment for China. How does that align to your view that the world will be looking for a financial repression built on inflation and low interest rates outside of China if you have effectively a deflationary force coming in from East Asia? Yeah, there's no doubt that the markets would initially move to price in deflation for a very good reason. Uh, because they'll have read my book and they'll know that's what happened the last time. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's what happened in 94. It, it not only produced very cheap products coming out of China, it, it kind of bankrupted lots of their competitors. So it would be obvious that the, the first step that the, take, the market would take would say this is going to be highly deflationary. China will be selling lots of products a lot more cheaply in, in, in dollar terms. So let me tell you why they're wrong. Uh, the first thing that has to be said about China's devalue is against the background of the mass mobilization of resources. And I think we can honestly say the biggest in history. I mean, the, the only competitor is America after the Civil War when the railroads went into the interior. And that was mobilizing people because it was dragging them across the Atlantic and it was accessing uh, new lands and new productive lands. But there was been nothing like this thing that happened in China. So one of the reasons that was, was not just the exchange rate, it was mass mobilization of what people call Chinese peasants. I prefer to call farmers. So it's less derisory. So uh, that's over. You know, it's done. You, you're not going to do that again. That was done once. But the most important reason it's not uh, deflationary is because of tariffs. The world cannot live with China devaluing its exchange rate if the result is selling goods much, much, much more cheaply. They just simply couldn't cope with that, given where we are in the global economic recovery, but given where we are with inequality of wealth, et cetera, et cetera. So if the response to China's float, I prefer float to devaluation, if it is beginning to become lower Chinese product prices, then it will be hit with tariffs. And then finally, remember the reason he's doing all this, the reason he's doing this is to inflate away debt. So ultimately, uh, it means much higher levels of inflation in China itself. So finally, I think, it also triggers a massive capital expenditure boom in the West because we're going to have to build a lot of the stuff that was previously built in China. So that's a, a, a combination of reasons. You know, you know, the easiest thing in the world is to go back into financial history and say, China devalued last time, therefore it means deflation, therefore it means deflation next time. But I, uh, I think it, the reason and the way we use financial history is to understand mechanisms. That's what we have to do. There was a very different mechanism in place back then, and nobody cared about China. It was a tiny economy. Uh, It turned out they should have cared about China um, because it was growing very quickly, but uh, things are very different now. And does that mean that in your role as a financial historian, you're increasingly interested in political relationships Mm. and how they might determine the pace and future of globalization? And what does that mean for how you think about those political realities various countries. So, so absolutely. So my career has been marked by, if you like, governments stepping away and letting markets determine prices. Uh, and that was launched by Thatcher and Reagan. It spread to Europe. Uh, and even the British Labour Party as New Labour were endorsing it. And we've really been stepping away for that from, for some time now. Now, mm, almost nobody's educated in what that means. Because certainly if you've been to business school or studied economics, they don't talk about it. They talk about how economics works in a free market. But what, how does it work in a non-free market? Uh, maybe we could ask the head of the IMF because she was educated in Bulgaria at the Karl Marx University. So maybe she might understand how it works. Anyway, the point is we do know how it works because the history books are full of how non-market systems work. Uh, and I don't mean by that a communist society. I mean the type of financial system we had after World War II where politicians decided to tell us the right prices of short-term rates, long-term interest rates, uh, but there were, we had price controls, we had wage controls, we had credit controls, we had capital controls. 
You know, it's hard for people to imagine who've been brought up in the current system that we can go back to that system and what it looks like. Uh, but ultimately, that's why politicians are important. And I, w I associate the word politician with the word control. And we're going to see a lot more controls coming in. So you have to understand the nature of what drives politicians. Now, it's not ideology. It's uh, pragmatism. Debts have to be inflated away. The market system has not been very, let's just say, not very good at that because the debt to GDP ratio is soaring up. So there will be active uh, means to do this. So uh, you raise the, the, the subject of globalization, and that is important in terms of this uh, wealth inequality issue. But I think it's much, much bigger than that. It is where we are in the continuum. If the one extreme is a, let's say, fair market economy and the other extreme is a command economy, we are moving from the market economy towards the command economy, not to it, but towards it. And that's 100% about politics. And if you believe your, all your economics is based on market economics and you want to invest uh, money based on that, uh, then I'll be choosing a different fund manager. Um, one of the slightly depressing themes uh, that, that I'm hearing is that you have to live through the lesson in order to learn it. Why? What is it about the human brain that makes us so bad at learning lessons that we haven't experienced ourselves? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Obviously, uh, given that I'm here talking about the value of financial history, I think you can learn something from it. Uh, the uh, Living through that uh, plane crash itself is is pretty visceral. And uh, yeah, as you know, there are different bits of the brain. And there's one part of the brain that kind of, uh, it's, it's uh, part one and part two, if you're going to Thinking Fast and Slow by, by Ganneman. And I think it's something about learning how to control that other part of the brain. If you've actually been, been through it, the instinctive part of the brain kind of takes over and kicks in. Uh, and I'm no expert in this, but I think that's why it matters, because it helps you get a better balance between those two parts. Uh, whereas if you just read about it in a book, you're, you're kind of quite cerebral. And that's a cerebral process. And then when you live through it, there's this other part of the brain, which is really kicking in. And knowing how to control that, knowing what it's telling you, maybe you have to go through it in... Uh, Maybe you have to go through that in real life. Uh, I don't recommend going through it in real life. You can avoid it because <laughs> it ain't pleasant. But uh, yeah, I think I think that's why. I think if you if you ask that question, and then we all go back and read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, we might get a pretty good idea why living it has a different impact than than, than reading about it. One other thing that um, that that I can extrapolate from that is we are we are very bad at forecasting major events in general. Um, and which is funny because there are many industries that are dedicated to nothing but that. What makes us so bad at predicting and how how can we develop a toolkit that can help us do so both in our professional and our personal lives? So when I arrived in Hong Kong to do my job in 1995 as a strategist, uh, I was 30 years old and I was advising global institutions where to put their money at the age of 30. But Uh, which is a bit bizarre. But anyway, I, I printed out and put on the notice board behind my head so that anybody who walked into my office saw right above my head a big thing that said, no extrapolation allowed. And everybody who sat in my office extrapolated. <laughs> uh, and I also tended to extrapolate. And there is something in the human mind which likes extrapolation because we like certainty. So we've got to remember this, that the human brain craves certainty. And some of the greatest disasters, not just in finance, but in politics have been people craving certainty. Uh, if you want to be a very successful politician and potentially a very dangerous politician, you find a world that's incredibly uncertain and you promise people certainty. And they'll do anything for you after that. And that's the greatest disaster of the last hundred years is people doing that. So I think it's because the human brain craves certainty. And if I say to you there's an event going to come up and it's going to create mass uncertainty, you, you tend not to want to believe that. Uh, and the greatest certainty is in believing what everybody else believes. So as, uh, as we all crave certainty, I think we try to avoid these things. The other thing is we are all, in our business in particular, we're all bred up to believe in markets and discounting. And markets are maybe pretty good at this point, discounting future supply and demand. But my experience is they're pretty useless at discounting politics. So a lot of the great big changes that, you're, that we, you know, we're talking about here are political changes. And people in markets have not been very good at it. And it's a very difficult thing because that means if it's only a 2% chance that it might happen, but it has a profound global chaotic influence, you're tempted to say, well, it's only 
But every now because and then, because you don't want to be the bearer of the bad news, you, you don't want to be the, the the person in the room who's 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 making that call, even though the consequences are so dire. Uh, and also, it's incredibly difficult to be right on the call because it's a pol- political call. And all your colleagues will be saying, but supply and demand are here. And you'll be saying, but the politicians are over here. And they're, well, we do supply and demand. So that's a, a kind of brief reason to do with human thinking and its fear of uncertainty, but also how decision-making happens, in, particularly in the investment management industry, that who wants to be the one person forecasting something there's only a 2% chance of it happens. But the consequences of it happening are really incredibly dire. So we tend to push that to the side and say, well, it might happen. But if it happens, there's nothing I can do about it anyway. So I don't want to be the person to forecast it. So I suppose if I'd done anything in my career, I've been the person forecasting the 2% chances (laughs) with the chaos. And uh, most of them have come right, but I would say that none of them have come right in a timely fashion. If you were in the uh, privileged position of taking a young Russell Napier aside in the mid-90s as you turned up in Hong Kong, Mm. what advice would you give yourself about the situation you were stepping into and what you should focus on in order to understand the route forward? So the the biggest mistake that that, that I made was not... We in our business are in silos. I, I don't think it's really improved very much. So they're, they're the equity guys and they're the debt guys and they're the commodity guys, and they don't really talk to each other. Uh, and in my case, I was working for a big bank. It was then called Credit Lyonnais, a big French bank. And the big French bank was all over Asia, and I was sitting in a little uh, equity-broking subsidiary of it, writing about equities. And I never really spent any time talking to the guys in the bank. And had I done that, I would have realized that they and every other European bank and every other American bank were lending dollars all over the place. But we didn't know. I mean, we really didn't know. Uh, I'm not sure how the companies uh, hid that on their balance sheets, but they did. The analysts didn't know. Uh, so I think uh, the, one of the biggest things I've learned in finance is get out of the silo. You know, go and speak to people in uh, direct investment. Go and speak to people. Go and speak to bankers. This is a great big financial system. And, and, and if you're buying equity in particular, every single bit of that connects somewhere into the equity nexus. And yet we tend to ignore that. Now there, if we sat here for 10 minutes, we'd come up with 30 or 40 places you could get really good information about equities. Uh, but we tend not to, not to do that. So uh, being a bit more Catholic in my tastes and looking sort of on a broader range of uh, factors rather than being in the equity ghetto, uh, and sad to say, I think the equity ghetto persists, and uh, not everywhere, of course. I'm sure our shoulders is different, but we, we, that's that's the key lesson: is you've got to think about this more widely. And, and you know, I wasn't thinking that much about the politics either. And for a country like Indonesia, it turned out that the politics were essential. For a country like Malaysia, it turned out the politics were essential. So, uh, get out of the equity ghetto is what I would have said to myself. And maybe I would have made some of these connections a bit earlier. Does that mean you think there's an advantage? You currently live in Edinburgh, but you've had a career that's predominantly focused in Asia. Do you think that distance, that geographical distance between between the two is an advantage to you? Uh, I think it probably is. And uh, the most important thing we have to do is have a long-term time horizon. Uh, now, that's such a trite observation, but yet who does it? Who, who, who can actually do it? And the closer you are to the center of things, the more difficult it is to have a long-term time horizon. So hopefully by being stuck in the middle of the Scottish countryside, <laughs> my uh, time horizon is at least a week longer than everybody else's. And I don't claim that it's you know, really, really long. But the, to me, the great, one of the great, there are lots of problems with the current financial system, but one of them actually is the one that nobody talks about, which is there's far too much liquidity, which allows some fund managers to change their mind a lot. <laughs> and uh, changing your mind a lot is not a good thing. So uh, I'm not a fund manager. I'm in the Scottish countryside. And for some reason, I don't change my mind very much. And uh, not looking at Bloomberg helps. Uh, I have to admit, I, you know, I find myself drawn to it as well. But not checking your portfolio every now and then would be a, would be a useful thing to do. So lengthening your time horizons is the most important. Anything anybody can do, whether they're retail or a professional investor, uh, but easier said than done. But it may help the further you get away from the buzz here we are sitting in the middle of the city of London, the buzz of the city of London. The further you get away from it, I think it helps a bit, but you know, let's not get carried away and say that everybody north of the border has a long-term time horizon because <laughs> that certainly, uh, certainly isn't true, but it probably helps a little bit. One way people try to get more comfortable with risk is by quantifying it. And I guess we see that in politics and in investment. Risk is difficult to put a number on because it's always subjective, but I think it's always something worth trying. I mean, it's really important because it, what, what you're doing there is you're creating a range of outcomes. 
and you're trying to risk weight a range of, out, of outcomes. Whereas in, the, and, and I think it might help that you're a woman as well. You, find it, you, might, you <laughs> might find it easier to do that. Men like to say, this is what's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. This is what we're going to do. I've got this great certainty. And uh, it is much better to do scenario analysis and risk, and risk weight things. Now, I'm going to try and get this quote right. It's uh, not everything that can be counted counts. <laughs> and not everything that counts can be counted. And that is a quote uh, attributed to Einstein, but he never said it. Like, I mean, I wish I was like Einstein because some of the smartest things ever said are attributed to Einstein. He never said them. <laughs> but you, you hit the nail on the head there. Not everything that can be counted counts. But we live in a world where, in our world anyway, where everybody loves to count things. And as soon as you counted it, you say, well, now it must be important because I can count it. And meanwhile, there's all this stuff going on that can't be counted in sociology, psychology, even I would say philosophy. But because you can't count it, people think it doesn't count. So your risk-weighting approach, to the extent that you are, you know, bringing in these other factors is important. We should all be doing it. And it gives you this wide range of spray of possibilities. At least you know what the range of possibilities is. Whereas if you're forecasting to two decimal points, you really don't admit to any other possibilities beyond your own. I do a lecture on 21 lessons from financial history. And the final lesson is... Uh, Never trust a forecast with a decimal point, <laughs> particularly your own. Because if it's your own, then you're fooling yourself. And that's even more dangerous than some uh, stockbroker trying to fool you with a decimal point. So uh, abolishing the decimal point, I think, could be a good thing in fund management. Well, so you mentioned the course that you run called the Practical History of Financial Markets, which is something that we've sent many of the members of our team in emerging markets on. What have you learned from that course over the period of providing it right we've got another 90 minutes have we to talk about that. so uh, uh, the good thing about that course is i don't teach it i mean i teach a little bit at the end of it and why that's good is i get to listen so the greatest being of my life is talking actually because if you think about it one of the few times when you can't learn anything is when you're talking so only when you're listening so i've, I've worked with some really brilliant people uh since 2004 we launched that course uh, and let me just do a slight plug for that course it has only ever been available really uh, in person, but within a month we will launch a fully online digital video version of that course. So uh, anybody who wants to find it puts my name and the word course into Google and they will find the, the website. So we're not ready to launch that yet, but it will launch. So anybody can take it. Uh, we, over a thousand fund managers have taken it. Not very many retail investors have taken it, but I think it's uh, absolutely, some have and tell me it's, you know, it's very digestible. So now that the plug for the course <laughs> is, uh, is over, I should say it's owned by a charity, by the way, so I'm not plugging it to uh, for personal gain. The, uh, I, I find it difficult to answer because there's just so much, but my, my particular bit, what particularly interests me is, is the subject of liquidity. So as I said, we, we, we actually have many bits of this. Uh, the first time we did that, it was taught by Gordon Pepper and Gordon Retired, and it's now taught by John Greenwood, and some people listening to this will know both those names here. Very famous in that era, in, 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 the, in that area. So to me, I would say the most important thing I've learned over the now uh, 16, 17 years we've been teaching it, is is the importance of bank credit. And, you know, if I walk into a room and talk to fund managers for seven hours about the future, almost none of them will mention bank credit. They don't think, they think it's important. Uh, for those listening who want to understand why it's important, there's a nice little article in the Bank of England website which explains that I think it's 82% of all the sterling in the world was created by commercial banks, not by the Bank of England but by the commercial banking system. So the commercial banking system is crucial in creating money. And in creating money, it's in crucial in creating growth, and it's crucial in creating inflation. Uh, and to me, it's the wellspring of many of the key variables we all need to look at, and yet virtually nobody looks at it. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I'm more on the inflation side of the argument now, because bank credit growth has sprung into life, prodded by the government, it has to be said, and I think there'll be lots more carrots and sticks for the banking system from the government. So if I had to pick just one thing, it was it's getting a better grip on how banks create money, what happens to that money, what happens when banks don't create money. Uh, and, I, and the reason I flag it up is I still think most professional, even successful fund managers still don't get it and still don't realize why the world just changed. You know, I, I think the governments are effectively running the commercial banks. If that's true, the government runs monetary policy and the central bankers are impotent. Well, if I'm, if I'm right, Bloomberg is wrong, because the top seven stories in Bloomberg every day will be about the central bankers. Uh, and if they're truly impotent, then why would you bother? So 
that has been an important story, I think, throughout the course. But I think it's even more important now if the governments really are, through a series of sticks and carrots, controlling the growth of bank credit. So I'd, I'd say that's the most important one. But there's a, you have to come on the course to find out what all the other important ones are. And how does that influence the view you take on situations like Japan, where there was a concerted effort to try and get inflation and you know, not much of a result? Yeah. You know, how do you look at that situation in term, from a monetary perspective? Yeah, I, I think that is a fascinating example because most people will attribute the lack of inflation in Japan to demographics. And this is really important because, as you know, the rest of the world is kind of following in the demographic trend of Japan. So therefore... It's one, of those, it's one of those things. Well, if Japan didn't have inflation because of its demographics, then neither will the rest of the world. But in my opinion, the reason Japan didn't have in inflation is it didn't create any yen. <laughs> it's pretty easy. And the reason it didn't create any yen is the banks from, I think, 1997 to about 2013, there was zero growth in bank credit. I mean, there was none, uh, partially because it was coming out of a massively over-average bubble and people were paying back their debt. So there was virtually no growth in the supply of yen. And if you don't increase the supply of money, you're probably not going to get any inflation. Now, that, that was beginning to change on a market basis from 2013, and it's picked up dramatically during COVID, which it has across the entire planet. So I think the Japanese will also get the message that if you want to create inflation, you need the commercial banks to create money, not just the central bank to try to create money. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, I think, a particularly important lesson that we learn from Japan. And this is all very out of favor analysis, as you probably know. Monetary analysis is not in favour because it's not been very useful for quite a long period of time because broad money growth was so low. But with it having boomed during COVID and I think to boom again under uh, government-directed finance, then Japan will have inflation. Now, I don't know if I'm allowed to make forecasts about financial markets on this podcast, but if it, if it is true and inflation comes back to Japan, the Japanese equity market should do exceptionally well. One other topic that you raise um, in the book is, and we have uh, we have touched upon in this podcast, is incentives and how certain human behavior is very easily explained when you look at the incentives put in place. In terms of the, 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 the topics we've discussed, such as the difficulty of forecasting and people not using scenario analysis enough, what kind of incentives do you think can be put in place in order to encourage the right type of behavior? Yeah. So I, I steal it from Charlie Munger, of course, who's the world's smartest lawyer. Uh, show me incentives and I'll show you outcomes. That's the Munger quote. It's, to me, it's the most important thing. I think you know, we're not just talking about finance here. If you walk into a room and sit down with anybody, ask yourself what the other person's incentive is before you have the first sip of coffee. <laughs> and it will uh, fundamentally change, I think, how you, how you take, that, take that meeting. The most important... So the incentives in finance are wrong, full stop. Uh, obviously, I'm partly here as an evangelist for financial history. Do I believe that if everybody was correctly educated in financial history that they would all be much better fund managers? Well, yes, but only if the incentives were right. It would really make no difference if the incentives were still wrong. It doesn't matter how smart you are. If your incentives are wrong, you're going to make stupid decisions. So we have to reorientate the decisions, uh, so the incentives. And uh, there's lots of ways you can do it, but it fundamentally has to be in lengthening the time horizon. It's, it's got to be about lengthening the time horizon for, for decisions. Uh, you, know, you raise it in the context of scenario analysis, and you can do that too. But if you don't have a time horizon which is commensurate with your ability to be right, uh, and we'll, we'll differ what that period is, but I think it's at least three years. I mean, I think it's at least three years, and anybody who can do it under, under three years is either an outlying genius <laughs> or lucky. <laughs> And there aren't, there aren't many outlying geniuses, so I suspect that they're probably lucky. So um, scenario analysis, however you do it, it's got to lengthen the time horizon. The incentive's got to be at least a three-year time horizon. And if you're rewarding people in any way and under the three-year time horizon, I think you're taking a big risk. So that's what, what I would do. Every, every other change in incentive is tinkering unless you lengthen the time horizon which I think is what value investors do, isn't it? You take a long-term view and uh, you stick with it. Oh, we certainly try. <laughs> um, and why, why are we so resistant to lengthening time horizons? Yeah, now, that's a great question because it's not... It doesn't seem like the worst thing in the world when you're describing it, but we seem to have a lot of reluctance to adopt that. Yeah, particularly financial services industry. You know, there are other businesses that have a much better record mm -hmm. in taking longer-term time horizons. I think, you know, and to be cynical about it, uh, the status... Why, the, why to inbuilt status quo is not change more quickly? 
because someone's benefiting from it is the cynical answer. And we keep going through all these crises and I keep thinking, well, now we'll change. <laughs> now we'll lengthen the time horizons. The, you know, the, 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 the disastrous implications of short-term time horizons uh, are so clear that now we'll lengthen the time horizon, but we never do. So there's got to be a great, I assume, a financial incentive uh, not to do it. I mean, I don't remember Greenspan going to Congress after the financial crash to say that his faith in his model had been destroyed because it was based on the economic self-interest of everybody who was lending. And it was in their economic self-interest to only lend to people who would pay back. And this was the whole faith of his economic model. Uh, he'd never heard of the securitization of debt, clearly. But you know, they may have been lending, but then they sold the exposure to somebody else. So their, their incentive was not to lend money to people who would pay them back. Their incentive was to create something that could be sold for a, for, for a higher price. So uh, let's, uh, let's lengthen the incentive. I think that'll do 90% of the work. But I'm losing faith in the ability of the financial system to do that proactively. And uh, the reason is probably everybody makes too much money by not doing it. I was going to ask how much you thought it was an innate human characteristic to avoid short-term pain, no matter what the long-term gain you might get from the decision you make today is. Yeah, no, I think that is true. But, but you can, you can, you can uh, work out an incentive system to cope with that. So, uh, yeah, we, look, I mean, a lot of what we're doing is trying to compensate for our own fallibility. Only the Pope is infallible. The rest of us just have to get on with it. So, uh, uh, you know, how do you compensate for human fallibility? Incentives. Can we do better incentives than we have though? Yes. Will we become infallible? No. Can we become less infallible? Yeah. One way uh, of becoming uh, less infallible, in my personal view, is by reading a lot. And uh, one of our signature questions that we ask all of our guests is to give us a book recommendation that you have read or written um, <laughs> that you think our audience could benefit from. And you're not allowed your own books. I'm not allowed my own books. <laughs> this is like Desert Island Discs. Uh, <laughs> so the one I always recommend is Triumph of the Optimists. Uh, uh, and I, I don't see how you can invest without reading Triumph of the Optimists. And uh, for those of you who don't know, it, it's, it, it sounds like the world's most boring book <laughs> because it basically takes uh, all the return data for equities, bonds and bills, bills basically cash from 1900. And sadly, the book's a bit out of date now, 2000. It's 100 years of return data for, I think at that stage, they had 16 markets. And this data is now, sadly, it's now owned by a, uh, it's not owned by the academics anymore. It's quite, it's not easy to get a hold of, but at least there's 100 years of that data. Uh, and they call it the Triumph of the Optimist, which I think is a great title. I, I'd like to call it the Art of the Possible. Hmm. And it is interesting when you speak to even professional managers and say, what is the long-term return from equities? Uh, and they're quite often way out. And certainly members of the public are usually far too optimistic, depending on where we are in the cycle. You know, obviously in March 2009, the public thought the return from equities was terrible. And in a bull market, they think it's 20% per annum. Uh, but this tells you what is possible. And that's really, really important because let's say I was a, a retail investor and I, somebody walked into the room and sold me an equity product and said, it's going to compound at 20% per annum. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. And then I walked down the street to buy a car and I, uh, I don't know if we, I think we still make uh, Skodas, don't we? And I say this, uh, you know, in, in the, let's say a 1989 Skoda is for sale. And the guy says, it'll do, uh, it'll do not to 100 in four seconds. It does 500 miles to the gallon. Like, look, I, I instantly know the man's a liar, instantly, because I'm calibrated. I, I am calibrated to know that automobiles can't do that. But in investment, people aren't calibrated. You know, and if you walk into a room and say, look, 20% per annum, no risk, if you're not calibrated to the art of the possible. So uh, Triumph of the Optimist is the essential read to calibrate. And if you're not calibrated, then you're susceptible to the... Uh, so every every person who sells financial products will be destroying copies of Triumph of the Optimist trying to stop people from reading it. So it doesn't, I mean, it just helps. It doesn't mean you can make you a great investor or anything, but it, but it, it, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like an antidote to uh, salespeople trying to sell you stuff to say, well, wait a minute, 20% per annum? When's that ever happened in, in history before for any prolonged period of time? And, you know, there are some, there are some people who've done it. There's some, you know, there are some very good investment people who've done it, but, but these are the outliers. So that's what I would go for. Triumph of the Optimist. And if I'm allowed a second one, of fiction. Okay. The Money Game by Adam Smith. And I'm sure many of the people who come on these podcasts mention The Money Game by Adam Smith. But it's a thinly fictionalized account of the great equity bull market of the 1960s. And this is not Adam Smith, the, 
the rather dour bachelor economist from Fife. <laughs> this is Adam Smith, whose actual real name was George Goodman. He was a, a very, uh, very good financial journalist in America uh, who wrote under the pen name of Adam Smith and is a much better writer than the real Adam Smith. So. <laughs> yeah, and I guess, uh, Russell, just to wrap up, um, we always ask guests on this podcast to describe a bad decision that they, they've experienced and the impact that that's had. I sort of covered that one in, in kind of being in the equity silo and not really knowing about all this level of, of debt in the system. But let me let me now quickly think of another one. Uh, so in about 2012, uh, having been pretty bullish since early 2009, I thought, well, you know what? This economic expansion is going to be weak. Inflation is going to come down. We're probably going to head for deflation. And that's going to be bad for equities. And that was a very bad mistake because it was basically all true apart from the last bit. Growth was weak and inflation peaked in 2011. And actually, even in America by 2015, it was negative. It wasn't negative by a lot. But by the end of 2015, it was negative. And if you in advance showed me this chart of inflation, I would have said to you, sell equities. And I forecasted it and I said, sell equities. And as you know, equities went up. They didn't come down. And the mistake was to believe that the fall in inflation could only really be caused by something going wrong in an economy. It would have to be something going wrong, and something going wrong would be bad for equities. But actually it wasn't going wrong. Things were going quite well. So I think that was one of the bigger mistakes I made to sort of, but it's a, it's a very good uh, lesson for all of us in forecasting. And uh, once again, if you really want to get a grip on this, you have to read Fiction, uh, which is a book by John Buchan, uh, who became Lord Tweedsmuir, called The Gap in the Curtain. And the gap in the curtain is about a clairvoyant who takes people into a room and he tells them exactly what's going to happen to them in one year from now. And based on knowing what's going to happen to them in one year from now, they all plan their future. And of course, they, they all make disastrous mistakes <laughs> because although it ends up in the right place, the route to that place is completely different from the route they imagined. They drew a straight line to that place and then based their life on a straight line and of course the line to that uh, was not straight. So even if you can make the right macro forecasts, uh, it's not absolutely crystal clear that everything happens for the reasons you thought they were happening. So I've learned from that because I wrote a diary on it, if you like. I wrote a piece of research, which was wrong. So I think that's a pretty good example of uh, being uh, being right on seven of the variables and being wrong in the conclusion. <laughs> well, I suppose it just provides ammunition, ammunition for future books, Russell. <laughs> Um, it has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Russell, for joining us. Thank you.